Good morning. Okay, so now let's read the scripture. So that will be found on, I think, page 1007 in your pew Bible in front of you. And if we could stand for the reading of God's word, it's Hebrews 10, verse 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful." And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, Bethel family. And uh, welcome to any of you who are visiting with us. We're glad that you're here. All right, so... Uh, We are doing a short series here on our values. We've got three values. So Bethel family, what are they? Gospel, that's the cross. Community, all those people. And then mission, okay? Gospel, community, and mission. So these are the values that we want to be, that need to be at the core of who we are as a church. So if these things are not at the center then we're centered on the wrong things. Okay, So even though that's true, we can all know that these are central in our lives, we still need to be reminded it's easy to get centered on the wrong things, um, kind of get thrown off on a given week or for a prolonged season. So it's good to be reminded. Um, and some of us may even need to be convinced that these things are essential and not optional, central, not peripheral. Okay, so you might need that this morning in reference to community. Okay, so maybe you resonate with these thoughts from a guy named Sam Albury. He wrote a book called Why Bother with Church and other questions about why you need it and why it needs you. So here's how he starts out the book. Being honest, on some Sundays, the park looked like a better option. I was working for a church in Oxford, and my walk to the morning service every Sunday took me through a park. It was lovely. There was something for everyone, a swimming pool, tennis courts, a boating pond, a lake full of ducks, a playground, plenty of space for ball games, and plenty of benches for watching everyone doing their something. On a sunny Sunday morning, the place was full, everyone doing their thing and having a great time. And there I was, walking through it all, Bible tucked under my arm on my way to church. The park looked like a lot less effort than the church. It didn't look as if anyone in the park was going to put me on a rota. What does that mean? He's British. Rotation, I think, to serve in some way. So anyway, no one's going to ask me to pick up the tennis balls every other Sunday or turn up early to get the ducks out. The park looked like a lot of fun. You could choose what you wanted to do, how often you went, if you went and how long you stayed. Feel like tennis? Come and play. Feel, like, uh, feel more like sitting on your own, reading a book? Great. 
And if you're not here next week, that's fine. You can make friends or not as you wish. The park also looked a lot more normal. No one would think I was strange for going there. Lots of my friends might like to come. Going to the park is a regular, normal part of 21st century life. Church, increasingly, isn't. Anybody resonate with that? Or know anybody that might resonate with that? So we're looking at our values and gospel last week, community this week, mission next week. Okay, So we reminded ourselves last week that the gospel is everything to us. We've sung about this, which is great. Um, We have nothing if we don't have the gospel, if we don't have Jesus. Because of Jesus, we have everything that we need. We looked at it from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. So since we have this great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, and we can approach the throne of grace with confidence to receive mercy and grace to help us. We've got all of this because we have Jesus. So the gospel is central. It's everything. It's how someone goes from spiritually dead to spiritually alive. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, like Brett mentioned. We're unashamed of that. We believe that. It's how people are rescued from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom, transferred to the kingdom of light. So it's the good news that you can have your sins forgiven, your debts paid, the debt of your sin, totally paid in full by Jesus. The defilement of your soul can be cleansed. You can be clean. You can be reconciled to God so our sin separates us. Reconciled to God because of the gospel, joining his forever family, all because of what Jesus did on the cross, on the cross, in our place, for our sins. But as we mentioned, the gospel is not just how you begin this new life with God, it's also how you grow and persevere all the way to the end. Okay, so what we have in Jesus is how we hold fast firmly all the way to the end. So as we consider value number two, we don't leave the gospel behind. That's why I'm rehashing from last week a little bit, because I want you to connect the dots between last week and this week. We don't leave the gospel behind and move on to community as if it's disconnected. The gospel actually creates the kind of community that we're after here at Bethel. It's the power to create it. It's also the motivation for each of us to cultivate it here. So let's not disconnect gospel from community as if they're unrelated bullet points. They are inextricably linked. You cannot divorce community from the gospel. If we do, it's not going to really, our community is not going to be any different than, say, the country club or the pool membership. Okay? I mean, those are nice, maybe, but we don't want that kind of community with just some thin Christian veneer kind of pasted on top. If the gospel doesn't anchor us and shape us and empower our community, then our community is just going to be like this social dynamic or, you know, we'll just kind of be nice to each other and we'll have a fairly low tolerance for sacrifice or for differences, which is why in many churches there's cliques because the gospel is not the center. What ends up being the center of those little cliques are the same kinds of things that draw people together outside the church shared interests. 
But if Jesus is our shared interest, if he's at the center, then you can have unity among all kinds of weird, like, what are we doing together? (laughs) Okay? The gospel can produce that. Beautiful unity in the midst of diversity. And that's the kind of community we're after, the kind of community that only the gospel can produce. Okay? So, our passage this morning is going to show us this connection between the gospel and community. It's going to start again with the gospel and what we have in Christ, and it's going to move on to community dynamics. So it's going to help us avoid getting the cart before the horse, okay, or just detaching the horse from the cart, okay? So you could say it this way. We must draw near to God first by the blood of Jesus if we're going to draw near to one another in the way that God intends. We've got to draw near first to God through Jesus if we're actually going to draw near to one another in community the way that God intends. So we start again actually the same way we started last week. If you were here, the first point was what we have, Hebrews 4. Well, Hebrews 10 starts again with what we have. So turn to Hebrews chapter 10 if you're not there already from when Brett read it. Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 19. We're going to see what we have again in Christ, which is so much, and it's wonderful. So verse 19, Therefore, brothers, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, the presence of God, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God. So we'll get to the commandment in just a minute, but like last week, once again, we're going to start with what we have because what we have changes everything. It's supposed to change everything. So therefore, brothers and sisters, in light of all that's been written in the previous context... And really, you could say that all of the book is leading up to this, therefore. All of this stuff about the greatness of Jesus, all that he's done for us, makes this possible. Confidence to enter God's presence. Okay? It changes everything. So therefore, since we have confidence, where did that confidence come from? It came from Jesus having this great priest who's opened the way for us. We have all of this, and it, and it changes everything. In other words, everything that's been said about Jesus, his superiority over every aspect of the old covenant, okay, the law was written on tablets of stone, right, out here. But the law can't change us. Jesus wrote the law on our hearts. He gave us new hearts. So the change is from the inside out rather than the outside in. Okay, that's just one way. So it was a temple. You had to go meet with God and only... You know, certain people could go so far into the temple and the high priest is the only one that could go into the Holy of Holies and he only once a year and he's trembling, and, you know, tied a rope around him in case he gets struck dead and pull him out. And now with Jesus tearing that veil by the tearing of his flesh, the way is open. Remember, the veil was torn from top to bottom, opening the way to the very presence of God for all peoples. Anytime, all of us 
anytime. We can come with confidence, not fear and trembling. We don't have to keep our distance like at Sinai. Remember that there was like this mountain was quaking in God's presence, and they're like, keep away, keep away. So we draw near. Why do you draw near? To worship God, to commune with him, to pray to him so that you receive mercy and grace to help you in your need. So we have this confidence to draw near because full atonement has been made by the blood of Jesus. We don't have to try to atone for our own sins. We can't. So Jesus' atonement is once for all, total, eternal atonement so that you can have confidence that your sin has been covered and you can draw near without fear of judgment. That's why it's a throne of grace like we looked at last week in verse chapter 4. So Jesus opened a way that was not there before. It's a new way. It's a new and living way because he is the way. No one comes to the Father except through him. So he opened the way for us, and it stays open. It's not like some holy site in the Middle East, you know, open one day, close the next with no notice. Anybody ever experienced that? Or maybe, you know, some park you wanted to go to here, or maybe it's Chick-fil-A and you showed up on Sunday and you forgot. Okay. So the presence of God because of Jesus is never closed. You know, all these crazy, all this construction around here and you want to go and there's that exit and it's closed. That never happens with the presence of God because of Jesus. Now that the veil has been torn, we can all enter any time. So since you have confidence, since we have confidence, before we go further, wait, do you have that confidence? Like practically, like this past week. I mean on your bad days. Do you come with confidence to the throne of grace into God's presence when you've blown it? When you feel like a failure? Or on those days, are you more tentative, more fearful, more ashamed to come? Or maybe on those days, here's what you do. You beat yourself up, try harder, and if you get your act together a little bit, then you feel like you can approach the throne again. Anybody ever do crazy things like that, like me? So I realized I had some of that dynamic going on this past week, and I just preached on Hebrews 4 last week. Come with confidence. I had to preach the sermon I preached last week to my own heart and mind this past week because of my own sin, my own failures. I feel like I'm failing here, I'm failing there. And what, my sin disqualifies me from coming into the presence of God? Remember in chapter 4 it says, to receive mercy. Why would you need mercy? <laughs> because you blew it. So come with confidence to receive mercy and grace to help you in your need. Like, this is good news for a reason, you know. That's why we need the gospel at the center. We need to beat the gospel into our heads, into our hearts, and actually believe and know, wow, look at all we have because we have Jesus. So if you keep your distance, if you relate to God more like the Israelites at Sinai, you know, where the presence of God was, you know, they had to like fence around it, keep away. If we relate to God like that, we're relating to God more like we're under law than under grace. 
So if we're under grace, if we have Jesus, let's come with confidence. We need to believe the gospel. We need to know what is ours in Christ because what we have determines what we do. It empowers what we do. Look at the logic of this passage. Just look at these verses here. What we have, you see it there? Confidence to enter the holy places. What do we have? Verse 21, a great high priest. Then what do we do? We draw near. What do we do? We hold fast. What do we do? We consider how to stir one another up, not neglecting but encouraging. So all the doing is empowered and motivated. It's a reflex of the having. All the doing is a reflex of the having. So if you're not focused on the having, you're not going to be empowered for the doing. Yes? So now that we've considered what we have, let's move on to what we should do. Point number two, let us draw near. Verse 22. So one of the reasons that this letter was written was because the first century readers were drifting spiritually. Anybody ever experienced that? Okay, this is relevant. This is not just back then history lesson. This is us too. They were shrinking back in unbelief. They're taking their eyes off of Jesus and falling prey to the deceitfulness of sin. Listen to 2.1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. So this book is one gigantic, multifaceted gospel diamond, like showing off the glory of Jesus, how he's better, better, better. He's superior to the old covenant in every way. And it's just saying, look at Jesus, look at Jesus, look at Jesus. Fix your eyes on him so that you can run the race that's set before you. Don't drift from him or you'll fall away from the living God. So you could sum up the book of Hebrews by saying, don't drift, run the race with your eyes fixed on Jesus. Okay? But the first place that you run when you look to Jesus is to Jesus. <laughs> like, as if the race is like distinct. The first place we run when we fix our eyes on Jesus is to him. We draw near to the throne of grace to get grace for the race. That's what we saw last week in chapter 4. Flip back there just to see it. So don't drift, draw near. 4.14, since then we have a great high priest, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That will help us with our drifting. That's the opposite of the drifting. And now again, we see it in chapter 10, verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So don't drift. Draw near. Draw near and get grace to run the race. Now, what is this drawing near for? That, that might sound kind of ambiguous. You might even think we know what that means, but if you stop and ask the question, what are you drawing near to do? Well, drawing near in the Old Testament was always for worship, right? So this is drawing near to worship God, okay, oriented with him as the sun, and we're all... Like, I'm not the center of the universe. God's the center of the universe, so we're worshiping him. So he's at the center. 
We draw near to pray, to thank him, to praise him, to ask for help, like chapter 4 says. Okay, so this is not just Sundays. This is daily. So first, it calls us to draw near, worship God. Second, how do we draw near? It gives us the manner in which we draw near, with a true heart. You see it there? Verse 22, what does that mean? Well, are you honest with God and with yourself? Do you, are you aware of how prone we all are to spin? And I mean like even spin in reference to ourselves. We kind of try to pull the wool over our, our own eyes sometimes. We rationalize, we justify, we blame shift, we... I mean, any time we give way to self-righteousness, like we're obviously blinded to who we really are. So we need to come with a true heart, be painfully honest with ourselves and with God. That is another way of saying if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. We need to, we need to own it. We need to own our sin, our stuff. Be real, get real with ourselves and real with God. Because if you're hiding some secret sin, if you're afraid of yielding some pet sin, yielding it to God's cleansing power, you're not going to draw near. Because that's going to seem like loss. So God will keep us from sin, or sin will keep us from God. So what do you want? Where is your trust? You see how drift and what we want and what we're holding on to, what's valuable to us is all connected, okay? So it's dangerous to drift. It's how people fall away. So we need to drop whatever has a hold on us and draw near to find mercy and grace. We need the gospel. We need this reminder because we are prone to wander. Sin is deceitful. Second, with our hearts sprinkled clean. So first, we come with a true heart. Second, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So reference to the cleansing work of the blood of Christ and to baptism. I love what this one commentator wrote. He said, most people, most of, most of the time, have something which hangs heavy on their hearts, something they've done or said which they wish they hadn't, something which haunts them and makes them afraid of being found out. How wonderful to know that the sacrifice of Jesus and the sprinkled blood which results from it has the power, as we accept it in faith and trust, to wash every stain from the conscience so that we can come to God without any shadow falling across our relationship. Yes, this is really good news. That because of Jesus, we can come like this. We don't have to hide anything. I mean, he sees it all anyway. So, all right, let's try to pull all this together. There is, and I want to have us pull it together this way. There's a sense in which Christianity is outside in and another sense in which Christianity is inside out. This is just to make sure everybody stays awake. Tracking so far? Everybody with me? With me? All right. So a guy named Dane Ortland gave a uh, lecture one time on Martin Luther and Jonathan Edwards at the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, okay? So 
Here's what he said. This is profound, I think. He said, Luther discovered and re-centralized and re-clarified that justification, this status, this one-time declaration over us, this legal acquittal, how we get right with God, is outside in. And we lose it if we make it inside out. How do you get right with God? You need a Savior out here. And you need His forgiveness and righteousness applied to you. If we say that salvation comes from the inside, what we do, that's lethal. We lose it if we make it inside out. Jonathan Edwards' great contribution, he said, is sanctification, how we grow in Christ, is inside out. And you lose it if you make it outside in. What did he mean by that? Christian change happens from the inside out. It's not behavior modification, you know, just conformity to some external list of rules. It's a heart change, and the change comes from the inside out. And it's lethal if it flips. And Christianity just becomes conformity to some external laws, especially if they're man-made laws. So, in light of what we have in Christ, he's our great high priest, our atoning sacrifice, that's out there, and it comes in here. And when it comes in here, it changes us from the inside out. So we should have confidence inside out because we have Jesus outside in. You see how this works? So we can draw near with honesty and confidence. There's this inside power and confidence and change because of the gospel that is out there. Jesus died in my place, and it comes in and changes me from the inside out. So faith is looking outside to the trustworthy one. Our faith is not in our faith. Our faith is in Jesus. And when we see how trustworthy he is, how wonderful he is, how superior he is, how glorious and merciful and gracious he is, confidence rises up on the inside and change happens from the inside out. So last week, remember I gave the illustration of the guy crawling across the ice, you know, real tentative, and then the guy with the horses, horses and the cart comes, yeehaw, you know, that one. I got another ice example here, okay? So this one comes from the New City Catechism. If you guys are still tracking with that, question 29, there's a devotional thought by Kevin DeYoung. He says this, many people will say, I'm a person of faith, or you've got to have faith, but faith by itself doesn't mean anything. It's the object of faith that saves us. See, outside in. It's not being a person who has strong beliefs, who is sincere, because you can be sincerely wrong, or who has a mystical belief in spiritual things that saves us. It's faith in Jesus Christ. He's the object. It's the object of our faith that saves us. Faith is only an instrument. Faith is what joins us to Christ, and then he saves us. It's the object that matters. And then he says, gives a little illustration. Growing up in Michigan, I often went ice skating and played hockey. I might tiptoe out onto the first freeze of the year and sort of wonder, is this ice thick enough? Someone else might be on the ice zipping around skating with great freedom and having a lot of faith in the ice while I'm gingerly tiptoeing and have just enough faith to get out on the ice. But what makes both of us secure? It's not the level of faith. 
though you'd like to have the strong faith that's zipping around there, but it's the thickness of the ice. It's the object on which you're standing that saves you, and that's Jesus Christ. So it's only faith in him. So Christianity is outside in. This ice is really thick. And the more you see how thick it is, inside out, confidence wells up and it changes us, changes how we live. So on the basis of Jesus' reliability, his trustworthiness, his mercy, and his grace that's all out here and it's for us and he wants it to be real to us internally, then we can hold fast. Point number three, 1023, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So last week we had a refrain, what we have is how we hold fast. What we have in Jesus is how we hold fast firm to the end. And this passage has lots of sympathetic vibrations, right? Same logic here. Since we have confidence, since we have such a great high priest, let's draw near with full confidence and let us hold fast. Do you know how seriously God wants you to have full assurance so you can hold fast without wavering? Like, do you, do you believe it? Do you know that he really wants to give you assurance. He wants you to be confident in him. So just so that you can see, I mean, read the whole book of Hebrews, but just so you can see how serious he is about this, flip back to chapter 6 of Hebrews. This passage is worth, like, meditating on for the rest of your life, okay? Hebrews 6, we'll start in verse 13. I'm not going to make lots of comments on this, but maybe it'll just encourage you to go back and drink it in and just kind of put this one on the front burner of your mind on simmer for the next week or month or something. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, the promise and the oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Do you hear that? How deeply God desires that you be sure of him. <laughs> he could have just made the promise. His word is good. If anybody's word is good in the universe, it's God. He keeps all of his promises. But he said, you know what? I'm, I'm going to give you not just a promise. I'm going I'm to make an oath. I'm going to swear on my own character 
to make it just more convincing to you because I want you to have confidence in me that you can bank on my promises. Don't waver because I'm not going to waver. That's the whole point. We can hold fast without wavering because he who promised is faithful and he will not waver in fulfilling all his promises. So now, in light of all that gospel mercy and grace, in light of who Jesus is, what he's done, what he promises to do, after we've drawn near to God through Christ, now we're ready to draw near to each other. Listen, if any of you are like, why couldn't we just go right to the community part? I mean, it's so much more practical. Well, guess what? In our own steam, we're going to run out of gas pretty quick with the whole community thing. Because, you know, some of us are hard to love. Okay? Me included. We need gospel grace to empower and shape this, these dynamics. So now we're ready to draw near to one another. And when we do, here's what it should look like. Let us consider verses 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So this is gospel community dynamics, right? We're commanded here to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. This is not optional. It's a command. So do you see what you're commanded? You're actually commanded to give this some thought. (laughs) To consider how to be a means of grace in your brothers' and sisters' lives. So it's really easy to attend church. It's maybe even easy to just attend community group. But what about really engaging in preparation and prayer and saying, Lord, how? How can I be an encouragement tomorrow? at church. How can I stir up this brother or this sister or whoever? Would you give me some creative ideas? Would you guide my steps? Would you give me the right questions? Would you help me? Or maybe you know somebody that's really struggling and you don't know how to help them. Well, consider how. to stir. Do you ever give any time in preparation to Sunday morning? This is not a passive thing. I know I'm up here talking and you're out there sitting, but we all need to be active because God, by his word, is speaking to us and he wants us to respond to him and live it out. So how can I encourage so-and-so? Hmm. We need some more time for hmm, like in preparation for community group, in preparation for a picnic. Like, you know, when we're done, we're praying. Lord, I'm going to want to, like some introverts are just going to want to go hide under a tree. Lord, help me to be an encouragement to somebody. Some, like me, I'm going to want to just go throw a ball and, you know, slide on the slip and slide, which I probably will do both. But help me to to prioritize people and engage and and guide my steps. Like, what if we take this really seriously? Like, how can I light a fire for this good work that we need to grow in at Bethel? How can I cultivate stronger relationships in our community group? How can I draw that person in who's kind of floating around on the periphery? 
How can I encourage that person who I know is going through a hard time? How can we invest in and stir up the young people? How can we invest in and stir up the older people? How can we help the single folks with what they struggle with? How can we help the married folks with what they struggle with? What about the married folk with young kids or with teenagers or with the empty nest? Or how can I encourage those who are wrestling with depression or anxiety? How can I stir up those for whom hospitality and knowing their neighbors is difficult? How can we stir up those who are scared to death to talk to their neighbor about Jesus? And on and on and on and on. So if we're going to be able to do this, this assumes something, right? We've got to know each other. <laughs> if we're going to actually stir each other up, we've got to know what the needs are, what the struggles are. We've got to know each other. If we're going to know each other, we can't neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some. So, verse 25, not neglecting to me. So, let us consider how to stir one another up to love good deeds. Not neglecting, because that's key to being able to do this. <laughs> this is hilarious. John Calvin said this. I don't know what you think of John Calvin, but you probably don't think he talked like this. There is so much peevishness. <laughs> I love it. That's a great word. There's so much peevishness in almost everyone. See, you didn't, you didn't escape there's so much peevishness in almost everyone that individuals, if they could, would gladly make their own churches for themselves. This warning is therefore more than needed by all of us that we should be encouraged to love rather than hate and that we should not separate ourselves from those who are joined to us by a common faith. It's really easy to get kind of annoyed with the peevishness and just withdraw. <laughs> So what keeps us away from each other or from drawing near to each other? And what, why do we neglect sometimes meeting together? Pride can get in the way. Sense of not needing the body. Well, Paul, 1 Corinthians 12, would say, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. So let's put our pride to death. We need each other more than we know. We even need the people that drive us nuts because we need that, like, our kind of stupid, selfish stuff to get kicked up so that God can purify us. <laughs> Fear of exposure can get in the way, which, again, this passage, hey, you can come with confidence, full assurance of faith. Like, so this is the passage you may need if you're afraid to be exposed because you're hiding something. And so later on in Hebrews, it says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles so we can run. So if there's something getting in the way that you're afraid, you got to get it out into the light. Maybe a trusted brother or sister, come talk to me so that you can get on with drawing near community of faith. So how about selfishness and laziness? That happens, just comfort zone stuff. Well, let the seriousness with which God takes these matters wake you up and drive you out of yourself to love and to stir others up to love, not neglecting. So I'm going to be real kind of practical and honest here. This is not because I'm 
like cranking about numbers or anything like that. I just don't know what's exactly going on sometimes. So this is just super practical. So we have probably around 240 people that call Bethel their home regularly. And regularly, we have about 180 maybe people that come on a Sunday. I don't know what that means. Vacations, listen to me. Just, just listen to me. Vacations, totally get it. Weekends away, totally get it. Some of you work on the totally get it. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not being nitpicky about any of this. I'm just saying, are there some of you that kind of view church as optional? Like, eh. You know, there's that really bad 80s song, Two Out of Three Ain't Bad. Sorry, shouldn't have brought that up into your mind. Um, so I don't know what that means. Maybe that's just realistic. You know, we all, stuff happens. But maybe if, if there's any just kind of like, no, nah, this isn't a value. This isn't central. Then let's let the text, let's let God shape us. I mean, we've talked about the central things here. We, we want to keep it as simple as possible. Sunday mornings and community groups. If you're going to do two things, come on Sunday and be actively engaged and get involved in a community group. You know, we're all busy. Okay. Have you embraced that? Listen to Charles Spurgeon. Give yourself to the church. You that are members of the church have not found it perfect, and I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not. If I had never joined a church till I found one that was perfect, I would have never joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would have not been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. How many times I pray that that would be true here. Would you join me in that prayer? I love that phrase. Still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. All who have first given themselves to the Lord should, as speedily as possible, also give themselves to the Lord's people. How else is there to be a church on the earth? If it is right for anyone to refrain from membership in the church, it is right for everyone. And then the, testi and then the testimony for God would be lost to the world. As I've already said, the church is faulty, but that's no excuse for your not joining it if you are the Lord's nor need your faults keep you back, for the church is not an institution for perfect people, but a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace, who, though they are saved, are still sinners and need all the help they can derive from the sympathy and guidance of their fellow believers. The church is the nursery for God's weak children, where they are nourished and grow strong. It is the fold for Christ's sheep, the home for Christ's family. So let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, but instead encouraging one another. The rest of verse 25. So this is the second time that this phrase, encouraging one another, is stated in Hebrews. First time is back in chapter 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort, encourage one another every day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So lay those two passages beside each other. We need each other, and we need each other to encourage one another away from the deceitfulness of sin and toward love and good deeds, good works. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about, living by faith in Jesus, not shrinking back, not drifting, getting sluggish, falling away, deep deceitfulness of sin, but enduring to the end. 
It's about confidence in our relationship with Christ, encouragement to lift our drooping hands and strengthen our weak knees and run the race that's set before us. And we can't do that on our own. We're not supposed to run solo. We need the company of pilgrims, faithful pilgrims, that God gives us as companions on the journey home. Listen to Hebrews 12, 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Think about that. The, the concern that no one failed to obtain the grace of God is given to the church. So we've got to take care of each other. Seeing to it is all of our job. So we've got to look out for one another, take care, lest there be in any of us a sinful, unbelieving heart, and encouraging one another as long as it's still called today, until Jesus comes back. And you know what? We're closer to that day than we ever have been. So dear Bethel family members, and you, you folks that have visited with us, we're glad you're here too, so this applies to everybody. Let's do this. Let's not just talk about this. Let's do this. Is this text going to impact your weekly patterns and mine? Is it going to shape your priorities and mine? Is it going to impact how you approach Sunday mornings? Like mind, heart, prayer, preparation for the sake of love and stirring up others. Is it going to shape how you engage in your community group or move to join one or prioritize attending as often as possible at the one that you are a part of or making more of a proactive contribution to your group? So listen, I'm I'm about done here, but do you know what the opposite of all this is? If we don't live with the gospel at the center, If we have a weak grasp on what we have in Jesus, I already know that. (gasps) We're not going to draw near. We're going to kind of orbit in the comfort zone. We're going to center our lives on other things, secondary things. And we're really going to find community with people that share those same other values. We might end up holding on to sin that keeps us from drawing near to God and drawing near to others. We're going to hold God and others at arm's length. And if that happens, the last thing that you're going to do is consider how to stir others up to love and good works. You don't want to stop to consider anything spiritual because it's too convicting. You'll easily neglect meeting together. Sundays become optional or perfunctory. Just go through the motions. Community groups, too inconvenient, or you'll find this or that reason to avoid it. And you're not going to encourage anyone. So listen. If perseverance is a community project, and the book of Hebrews says, yes, it is, then our resistance to this passage here is not just a a threat to your soul's health. It's a threat to the health and well-being of the church. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes. And again, we need to know each other if we're going to be good guardians of one another's souls. I mean, how many times when bad stuff happens, what do we say? I I didn't know. I had no idea. I can't believe this or that happened. Now, certainly sometimes people don't let us in, but if we don't consider how to stir one another up, we're going to end up being insensitive and 
all kinds of opportunities to love will pass us by because we weren't engaged. We weren't paying attention. We were indifferent. We weren't intentional and proactive and thoughtful. So let me just close by connecting the dots with our mission statement. So values at the core, gospel community mission. What's our mission statement? See it on the front of the bulletin, top right? We are here to reflect God's infinite worth through Christ for the glory of his name and the good of all peoples. Guess what? We are all going to reflect some set of values. We are all little moons giving off the light of what we love. Don't you want the gospel and beautiful Christian loving community? People will know that we're Jesus' disciples by the way we love one another and the mission, which we'll get to next week. Again, we've got the best news in the world. Can't keep it to ourselves. Don't you want that to be at the center? Don't you want to reflect, shine with the value of the greatest treasure in the universe, Jesus? Let's pray that we will reflect gospel, community, and mission because you know what? It's for our good and it's for God's glory. The good of the church, the health of the church, and the good of the nations is the result of us embracing these values. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are so merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Thank you that you did everything necessary to draw us in. And we need mercy and grace to apply this word and respond. So we come with confidence to your throne of grace asking that you would give us the mercy and grace to help us with all the needs that we have relative to living out biblical, gospel-saturated community for the good of this church, the good of this community, and the glory of King Jesus, we pray these things in his name. Amen.